This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the systematic and biblical theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm your host, as usual, Nick Batzig, and I am glad to be here with um, Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is the teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Jeff, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Glad to be on the program. And we are also very excited to have back on uh, David Filson. Dave is teacher of the congregation at Christ Presbyterian Church there in Nashville, Tennessee. He's one of several pastors at that PCA church, and great to have um, a PCA minister on uh, one of the Reform Forum podcasts with me so that I'm not the only one. <laughs> Dave, it's great to have you on. Good to be here. Jeff, Dave, and I had thought about doing some special things with the podcast as we started back up again. And while we have sermons and we have um, some discourses that we're going to consider together and dissect the theology and and sort of pick it apart and see what we can learn from Jonathan Edwards as we sit at the feet of this great um, this great theologian, this gift to the church. Um, we thought it would be helpful to our listeners if we did a show or maybe two devoted to um, uh, the life of Jonathan Edwards, um, kind of talk about his historical setting a little bit. And so while we may have possibly um, considered doing this at the very beginning, we're doing it now here in 2013, and um, hopefully this will be a benefit to you all. And so as we um, come together to talk about the life of Edwards and, and talk about his um, the chronology of his uh, life and his writings, I wanted to ask you, Jeff and Dave, um, to talk to our listeners a little bit about what biographies are out there. I know um, several people are going to be familiar with Marsden and um, maybe Ian Murray, but what biographies have you all found help- helpful, and can you give us a little bit of background about those um, the men that have written them? Sure. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump in here, and then Dave, you can jump in where you uh, deem appropriate. Sure. Uh, Mar- George Marsden's book, uh, Jonathan Edwards, A Life, goes back to 2003, which was the 300th birthday of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, it is uh, probably the uh, the biography uh, to uh, go to. If you're looking for uh, a biography that's fairly thorough, uh, several hundred pages, uh, published by Yale University Press, uh, and it it, it it does reflect uh, the the influence of the publication of the works of Edwards. Uh, so, uh, and it and it reflects uh, Dr. Marsden's painstaking research and uh, and analysis of Edwards and his times. Uh, a good good resource. What are your What are your thoughts on that, David? That particular volume. Well, I I was excited about this volume uh, the first time I picked it up, and in fact, if if I recall correctly. I got it when I was at Princeton, uh, at Princeton Seminary, there was a, uh, a seminar, a weekend kind of right. conference on, 
on Edwards, and it had just come out, and I got it when it was hot off the press. I love the book so much. I've read it um, a number of times. I use it as the main text, the main secondary text on Edwards for my course at Reform Seminary in Charlotte, which I'll be teaching week after this coming week. And I use it uh, not just because it is, it is a good life of Edwards, but I use it because it's a good intellectual biography. And it is an excellent example of historiography. It's, it's an excellent example of history writing, of intellectual biography. Uh, it's a good entree into the life of Edwards, but also into uh, a theological analysis of, of Edwards. And one of the things that I like about this is, whereas Murray's uh, Banner of Truth volume, which some of our listeners may have read, and, and it's, it's beloved, it's, it's very warm, uh, some have accused it of being an example of hagiography. I don't know that that is entirely fair to Murray. I really don't. I love the Banner of Truth volume in Edwards. I just think that, that uh, Marsden's volume is uh, a more properly critical and yes. intellectual biography of Edwards. And the other thing I like about it is that I think it is more faithful to Edwards as a Calvinistic and covenantal theologian, uh, say, as opposed to Philip Gura's uh more recent, I think it's 2006 volume, you know, more slender volume on Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, America's Evangelical, which reflects more of a, a Harvard stream of interpretation of Edwards, sort of picking up on, uh, on Perry Miller's version of Edwards as a modern and with Gura, sort of a, a postmodern read of Edwards. I think Marsden's uh, Edwards is more faithful to, to an evangelical and Calvinistic interpretation of Edwards. I highly recommend it. I love it. Yeah, it's, when I first got it back in 2003 and read through it, I, I found probably the the first biography that I felt at home in, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of reading Edwards. Now, he has, Dr. Marsden has since produced a smaller book, a shorter book, that's not merely, it's not merely a condensation. There, uh, I forget, is it called The Shorter Life, Dave? It is. Uh, it's really actually, a, part of it is a comparison of Edwards to Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinking about two major characters in the American colonies uh, uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, and he compares and contrasts. So it's worth, it's worth looking at that volume for that additional uh, focus. Uh, I agree. In, in, in terms of uh, biographies, they go way back to... Um, is it Joseph Bellamy or Samuel Hopkins who did the first biography? Uh, Hopkins did Hopkins, the first. right? Yeah. And that you can find in print. I think uh, there are various reprints of that. Uh, he That's was a he was a, an intern, right? By, um, oh goodness, Hendrickson doesn't the Hendrickson two volume set have that included in oh, it? Oh, does it? I, I, think I don't it does. have that set. So. I think it does. The Banner right. of Truth two volume set doesn't have it, but the Hendrickson. You know, reprint of the Hickman edition does have that, I believe. That's good to know because I was not uh, aware of there being any significant difference other than the retype setting, which is helpful in itself. And uh, I'm, I'm sure Hendrickson. I'm sure you can find it on Google Books or archive.org. Right. That, that's um, going, and Samuel Miller, the second uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, also produced a biography. Of Edwards, uh, going back in that's in the 1800s. I also think that's you could probably find that in print. Someone has repub- republished it in recent years. 
Then you have a really helpful biography is, is Steve Nichols' book, a guided tour, Jonathan Edwards, A Guided Tour of His Life and Thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it, you know, it's not just because he's a personal friend of us, you know, of us guys, but uh, uh, Steve knows his subject matter very well. And, and uh, that is, that was, that's a joy to read. And that also is not just a biography. It, it actually has summaries of key uh, types of writing uh, to be found in the uh, Edwards body of literature. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great little volume to give to people who want an entree into Edwards. It, you know, I think that on a more popular level and then probably uh, Sean Lucas's, you know, God's Grand Design on a little bit more of a, of a theological right. analysis. Th- those two volumes are just great, uh, quick and easy volumes to give to folks. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. We we have just a summer to note the the Murray biography that we're talking about came out in 1987, published by Banner of Truth Trust, and it's titled a new biography. It, it might be time to give it a new title, uh, seeing as it's a few years old. But uh, again, uh, a, a worthy volume to have in your library, a good place to to. Uh, to study, but at the end of the day, the Marsden biography has, in, in my opinion, the, the place of honor amongst the various biographies. I, I do agree. I do agree, and I think uh, people might be off-put by its sheer size. I mean, what some eight hundred pages or so, right? Uh, and again, when I when I teach my course on Edwards at the MDiv level, that is the lion's share of the reading I'm allowed to assign. But it, it's just so worth it, again, not only because it's a biography, it's a life, because it's an intellectual biography. You're getting a lot of theological analysis by Marsden as well, so it's very valuable. And, and yeah. I think it's a page-turner. It I is. Read. It's well-written. But I think we also ought to mention, just in order, you know, for, for the sake of legitimacy as a show on, on Edwards, obviously folks who are going to get uh, deeply involved in Edwards' scholarship – you're not going to be able to avoid, nor should you, Perry Miller's 1949, Jonathan. Yes, that's correct. Right. That said, it, it's, um, it is Perry Miller's, without getting into a lot of what was going on there with, with Miller philosophically and in his, uh, you know, what, what his motivations were with that volume, it's not going to give you an accurate assessment of Edwards' life and of Edwards' theology the way Marsden's going to do, but it is certainly... Uh, an important, a very, very important volume in, in uh, secondary literature uh, where he is trying to paint Edwards as an example of, of, a, of a modern man, uh, limited in scope, but it's nonetheless important in uh, the the history of Edwards' historiography. Right. Right. And then, of course, the several chapters in Errand into the Wilderness and Right. Um, that's really where he, where Miller sets out the revisionist kind of history about Edwards, um, not being as Calvinistic, right? Or not it's, as covenantal. As covenantal, as right. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. we talked about that in previous episodes where we've looked at sermons where Edwards' covenantalism literally leaps off the page. I mean, y- you can't ignore it. And so that was, you know, one of the Achilles heels of of Miller's interpretation of Edwards was to deny that Edwards was essentially a Puritan, essentially a covenantal theologian. And that's one of the reasons that Conrad Cherry's uh, volume on the theology of Edwards, I believe it was 1964, 
I don't have it right in front of me. Yeah, in the, in the mid-60s. Yeah, I think it was around 64, where he clearly says, yes, Edwards was a covenantal theologian. The downside of Conrad Cherry is that when you read Cherry on Edwards on Scripture, you, you see Edwards sort of recast as something of a neo-Orthodox right. with regard to his, his theology of Scripture. All this to say, since 49, that the scholarship on Edwards has turned Edwards into something of a of a theological Mr. Potato Head, where you can put the eye where the nose is supposed to go, put the ear where the mouth is supposed to go, and sort of recast Edwards, uh, you know, neo-Orthodox, modern, postmodern, whatever. And that's just been indicative of, of some of Edwards' scholarship over the last 50, 60 you know, years or so. Um, right, right. Yeah, and, and we and we can we can note that that's not necessarily a completely new phenomenon. If you're familiar at all uh, with Edwards' scholarship going back into the 19th century and even into the 18th century, into his own time period, uh, he's he's been a, a subject of dispute. Uh, but one one book I maybe we can close out th- that I can recommend, and it's a huge tome, but it's. Uh, uh, reading Jonathan Edwards by M. X. Lesser, it's it's uh, actually an updating of two prior bibliographies, and then a third being added. Uh, that goes back to everything uh, on Edwards from the 1700s up to 2005. So, if you're looking for a uh, an annotated bibliography of Edwards material, that's that the one place to look. Highly recommend that, and you, you usually only find that in theological libraries. Uh, it's a it's a bit of a pricey volume, but I have it on my shelf over here and refer to it regularly. And if anyone's going to do serious research in Edwards, it's really a priceless resource. Mm. Very nice. Well, let's transition and consider a little bit, for our listeners' sake, um, the history of Edwards' life. Um, as we know it from the sources we have. Um, Dave, would you kind of walk us in and just talk about the early years and what we know about the history of Edwards' life? Absolutely. Um, when you think about uh, Edwards and um, and his early days, I think it's helpful to even go back, you know, prior to uh, to Edwards being born. Um, I always start my, my class at RTS on the theology of Edwards off with 1635 and Thomas Hooker's migration to Massachusetts, uh, where on board was Richard Edwards, uh, who was born around 1647. Well, his son Timothy Edwards uh, is is important. I think uh, interesting, even even humorous, when uh, you read in Marsden's biography of the quote a checkered career at Harvard that Timothy Edwards had. He was a very learned man, uh, a man of of books. He was a very uh, animated uh, preacher, had a very high view of the office of, of minister. Um, you know, when Marsden talks about him, he says essentially that Timothy Edwards, uh, Edwards' father, was the moral guardian of East Windsor. Well, Timothy Edwards uh, is able to land a wonderful wife. Her name is Esther Stoddard. And what is uh, uniquely uh, germane to Edwards' life as a minister will, will come into play later because her father, of course, was Solomon Stoddard. Solomon Stoddard lived from uh, 1643 to 1729, and he was essentially the Pope of the Connecticut Valley. He pastored in Northampton from 1672 to 1729, was a great, very effective, uh, very effective preacher. Well, in the home of uh, Timothy and Esther on October 5th, of, uh, of 1703, 
Edwards was was born, and he was one of eleven siblings. Uh, he had ten sisters, and so that uh, probably has some impact on just his personality and uh, his proclivities, etc. But the the early life of Edwards is really a fascinating a fascinating study, and there's been a lot written about uh, how precocious Edwards was. As a young man, there's a lot of things we could we could say about that. How how eager he was to study, how uh, rapid he was with the intake of information, the assimilation and analysis of of information. But a very very precocious uh, young man, uh, around 13 years of age. I don't know what most of us were doing around 13 years of age, but at 13 years of age, Edwards was reading some very weighty and uh, significant. Uh, pieces of, of literature in in philosophy and was very interested in these things. He did his bachelor's at Yale uh, from 1716 to 20 and then took his master of arts in 1720 to 22. Uh, again, very, very philosophically concerned, very interested in logic, very interested in, really in a, in a great number of things. Uh, and again, there's a lot that you can read about that in Marsden's biography. Sometime around May or June of 1721, uh, Edwards reflects on 1 Timothy 1.17 and speaks of an inward sweet delight taking place. Um, th- this, this really sets a trajectory for his, for his understanding of religious experience. Uh, the, the language of, of inward delight, of course, comes up in religious affections in a number of sermons, etc. But pretty quickly after that, Edwards is in pastoral ministry. Uh, in fact, when he was 19 years old, uh, from August of 1722 to April of 1723, Edwards is ministering in a parish in, in New York City. And this particular parish was a Presbyterian church. It was a, resor- a result of a split between some English and some Scotsmen. He was uh, not able to, to sort of counsel that split back together. He became an unordained, regular interim pastor there. Uh, with hopes that he would become their regular pastor. That didn't work out. Uh, Timothy Edwards, his father, set up another uh, opportunity for him to be a pastor in Bolton, and he hated to leave. Edwards hated to leave the people there in New York, but from November of 23 to May of 1724, he transitions into uh, to Bolton, Connecticut. Murray, uh, Ian Murray, in his biography, says, interestingly, for reasons unknown, his settlement at Bolton was never carried into effect. And so this is a, a rather temporary, transitory time for him. Martin says of the Bolton period that it yielded his most cheerful sermons. And he speaks of Herculean efforts to communicate to his Bolton congregation in ways that they could understand. Uh, and there are much you know, pastoral efforts spent trying to get the people there uh, to get along with each other. So Edwards is really being baptized by fire from a pastoral perspective in both the New York setting and in the Bolton setting, uh, just realizing that, that life in the sheep pen is messy and sheep have teeth and they, they bite, uh, et cetera. Let me, let me interject here real quick. Um, 1722, interestingly, is when Edwards begins his resolutions and his miscellanies. Um, which is interesting because he starts both of those things the first year he's in pastorate there in New York. And then um, 
really continues on pretty heavily writing the miscellanies, 1723, 24, 25. He ends up writing almost 200 miscellanies over those first few years in pastoral ministry, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's very interesting that you say that because it's not only the resolutions and the miscellanies that he begins there, Nick, but also uh, his diary, his uh, treatise on the mind. Notes on Scripture in 1724. Yeah, and so he he really is wearing out the quills. I mean, he, he's starting in earnest a very robust writing ministry during these early years of, of pastoral ministry. So as he's sort of getting his his sea legs under him as a very, very young, inexperienced pastor, he sees um, writing as an extension of his of his pastoral ministry. So he's at Bolton uh, until 24. Um, by 26, uh, 1726, he becomes um, uh, an assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, and he is there, as you know, until 1750. And so the bulk of his ministry, the bulk of his of his sermonic corpus, uh, especially in terms of his writing ministry, takes place uh, during the Northampton years, as well as the bulk of his writing corpus on religious experience, uh, revival writings, religious affections, etc. His more, um, you know, how would I say, rarefied theological treatises, you know, in original sin and, and those sorts of things are going to come during the Stockbridge years. But during these Northampton years, He's really focused on religious experience, really focused on preaching, focused on an analysis of the revival. By 51 to 58, uh, he winds up in Stockbridge, and I'm sure we'll say more uh, in terms of the details surrounding his transition uh, to Stockbridge and then his transition from Stockbridge to to Princeton, the the, uh, presidency of the College of New Jersey uh, later in the show. But from 51 to 58, his his final pastoral season uh, is there in Stockbridge where there are four white families. Um, joining two missionaries to form a white church, and there are around 200 Housatonic Indians, and Edwards is ministering to both of these, both of these groups and attenuating his preaching uh, to the capacities of both, both sets of hearers. So that's sort of a, an overview of Edwards' uh, early life and his sort of main pastoral seasons. Yeah, and I'd encourage our listeners at this point, if you do have money to spare um, for books that you want to buy, get a hold of um, the Yale University edition of the works of Edwards. Um, volume 14 would cover the majority of this time period, 1723 to 1729, um, the sermons and discourses. That's volume 14 in the works of Jonathan Edwards series, um, because I've always been fascinated. And I don't know about you guys, but I've always loved reading, especially the sermons of the early years, being, you know, a younger minister myself, only a ministry about five years, and um, just looking at this great man, this great theologian, and yet he was also a pastor, and, and studying those early sermons and seeing his theological development is one of the greatest things um, in Edward's studies, in my opinion. One of the things I love about, you look at the, the sermons, and we've talked about this on, on previous shows where I sort of went over a sort of a 30,000 feet flyover of the, the, the types of, of Edward sermons in his corpus and then the various years where you see certain things characterizing various years, various seasons of Edward's preaching. One of the things that, that I really love about uh, some of Edward's sermons, especially 
as he starts preaching more regularly at Northampton and then around the time of Solomon Stoddard's death and when Edwards becomes, you know, in effect, the senior pastor in Northampton, just how doctrinal those sermons were, how clearly theological and doctrinal uh, many of those many of those sermons were. But that, that whole period, I think, is very interesting from Edwards becoming a pastor, an assistant to Solomon Stoddard, because prior to that, you know, between uh, the New York and Bolton experience, for a couple of years, Edwards is a tutor, uh, but then, then he becomes a pastor again in, in 1726, so he sort of moves up the ecclesiastical ladder, uh, and then a year later, he moves up the social ladder because he has the good sense to marry uh, a lady named Sarah Pierpont, and uh, she was the granddaughter of the founder of Hartford, uh, Thomas Hooker. Sarah lived from 1710 uh, to 58, and you mentioned her death a second ago uh, there, Jeff, but right. one of the interesting things about uh, Sarah Pierpont is that when you go back to 1718, when uh, Edwards was, um, you know, he, he was he was at Yale, and uh, he would have been at New Haven's first church. He would have seen her from from a distance, all right, and and so he would have known her as far back as 1718, and then somewhere around 1723, when he was uh, a tutor at at Yale. He writes this about this girl he sees from a distance. It's really interesting. He says, they say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world. And there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him that she expects after a while to be received up where he is to be raised out of the world and caught up into heaven being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished by his love and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the richest of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections, is most just and praiseworthy in all her actions, and you could not persuade her to do anything thought wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after those times in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about singing sweetly from place to place, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure, and no one knows for what. She loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on mountains, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. He's writing this back in 1723 about the girl that he would marry in 1727. So he's smitten with her mm. you know, at least four years earlier and was aware of her uh, several years earlier by 1718, but is that smitten with her that he writes this sort of laudatory hyperbolic, uh, you know, really, you know, peace on her spiritual life and her relationship to the Lord that far back and then ends up marrying her in 27. Yeah. He sounds like a charismatic too, which, you know, I appreciate. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's really, that's great, Dave. I've actually never heard that. I, I really appreciate you reading that to us. Um, really see God's hand in bringing Jonathan and Sarah Edwards together. Who wrote, um, married to a difficult man? Well, there's a two books to deal with their marriage. Uh, one's by Edna Gerstner. My wife, 
read that years ago. I read it years ago. Um, I don't know if that was a commentary on, on our marriage, why Diane read I know, that. I know. Every time, every time <laughs> things get difficult in, uh, in life, Anna's like, uh, hey, where's that book, um, Marriage to a Difficult Man? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The, the Uncommon uh, Union is, uh, the, is the book by Edna Gerstner. Okay, Marriage okay. to a Difficult Man is Elizabeth Dodds. Is Elizabeth Dodds. Okay, okay. The union phrase actually comes from, and I guess you know we can hold this off to the end, but there, there's so much to say about the death of Edwards and as he's lying yeah. deathbed. But that's a phrase he utters regarding their marriage uh, on on his deathbed. Now, right. I, I I'm interested in knowing from either of you kind of a little bit about the halfway covenant controversy, Edwards being there with Solomon Stoddard. Yeah, Stoddard is an adherent of that and saw the uh, coming to the Lord's table as a converting, as a possible converting ordinance. Right. And, um, you know, Marsden goes at great length in his biography about how that whole halfway covenant comes about. And, and there's a lot going on sociopolitically uh, in Northampton uh, surrounding right. So that Edwards challenging that was um, it, it was certainly a social and ecclesiastical faux pas on his part from a political standpoint. Well, what what's going on is when the when the Puritans come over from the from England, uh, they have the notion that, that everybody uh, they they have a view of the uh, the church as the uh, community of the of the elect. Uh, and what's happening is over time, uh, you have generations who are who are not making professions of faith, right? They they may be baptized, but they're not uh, admitted to the Lord's table. Exactly. Uh, and what happens is they come up with this halfway covenant, which allows for baptisms uh, of people who who have never professed faith. And then the what what goes on with the Lord's Supper in in Stoddard's situation is a further extension of the logic uh, of the halfway covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe I, it's been a while since I've given any thought to to that topic. Well, I know that Edwards and Stoddard have tension in their relationship because of that. I just didn't know to what extent. Well, Edward, yeah, Edwards clearly rejects the notion, uh, and I side with Edwards at this point, of course, uh, that, that the Lord's Supper is for believers, not not for uh, unbelievers. Right, uh, right. But Stoddard had the notion that it was a converting ordinance. Uh, and, of course, that's not to, to say that the Lord couldn't bring about a conversion at the time of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We're just saying that the, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is not to bring someone newly to faith in Christ, but to nurture and nourish those who have already trusted in Christ. Right. Uh, and that, that's, that, as David has already said, got Edwards in trouble, because remember, his grandfather had been pastor for 60-some years, right? Uh, and and so he really, his, his viewpoint was driven home to the people. Uh, and so, when Ed, and Edwards himself, for many years, abided by his grandfather's views. He did not publicly uh, reject them until later in his ministry. Right. Uh, uh, there, and there's also the issue of uh, his uncle, uh, 
who who was a military and political leader uh dying and and so re, re, that hedge of protection if you will was removed from Edwards in terms of the uh fallout from his uh, coming coming out and saying look I don't agree with my grandfather on the Lord's Supper I think he was wrong uh and so there are but there's all sorts all sorts of issues involved in that whole scenario yeah and it, it excuse me as you said it, it predates both Stoddard and Edwards it goes back to 1662 the Massachusetts Synod where we see the origins of this and and by the time you get to Northampton, uh, what, what you essentially have is if someone will profess the faith, not profess faith, they don't have to profess personal faith, right? but if they will acknowledge uh, the faith, as it were, if they will acknowledge the church's confession, and if they will live their lives in society in such a way that it's not scandalous, uh, that the way they live their lives does not somehow, uh, you know, scandalize the the Christian faith, then they are allowed to come to the table. And so it becomes essentially this societal expectation uh, among congregants there uh, in Northampton. And so at the time Edwards looks at this biblically and theologically and challenges it, I mean, it, it is a very, very serious matter and something that it's one of the things really from which he never fully recovers no, that's right. It it feeds into uh, his de- deposition from the pulpit at Northampton, right? Uh, and which, of course, leads to his service uh, in Stockbridge. Well, by uh, 1729, Edwards uh, succeeds Solomon Stoddard at Northampton uh, upon Stoddard's uh, Stoddard's death, and obviously, this is thrusting Edwards into a very prominent position in the Connecticut Valley. Very, very big shoes to fill. And from a stylistic perspective, he's very different from, from Stoddard. Stoddard is a commanding pulpiteer. Uh, Edwards, as we know, at least uh, in terms of oratory, not so much the case. In terms of rhetoric, in terms of wordsmithing, definitely. I mean, you, you see his capability with a sermon like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, what he's capable of rhetorically, and, and in terms of wordsmithing, but from an oratory perspective, not really Stoddard's match. Takes over for Stoddard, and some very important things uh, take place, such as just you know a couple of years later, 1731, he preaches uh, God Glorified and Man's Dependence on July 8th of that year uh, in Boston. That was actually Edward's first printed sermon, very doctrinal sermon. And it really was a watershed moment in the life of Edward's in terms of the theological trajectory he sets forth, very Calvinistic, very covenantal uh, sermon there. But I think, uh, you know, re- really the beginning of some, of some years of relative uh, popularity uh, for Edwards uh, here. And by 34, uh, at least in Northampton, the fuse is lit for the First Great Awakening uh, in Northampton, in the broader Connecticut Valley, uh, where Edwards preaches his justification series. And it really is this series on a very theological topic that that lights the fuse for revival, such that, you know, later writings by Edwards, you know, 37's uh, Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God, or, or 38, 1738's Charity and Its Fruits. He's writing these revival writings, looking at and analyzing the revival, the fuse of which is lit by the Justification series in, in 34. It's during this period as well 
where we see Edward's proclivity for study. You know, around 13 hours a day, I think Murray points this out in his uh, biography, his Banner of Truth biography. Right. Around 13 hours a day, he's spending studying and reading and writing and preparing his sermons and so forth. And it's also during this period where the uh, the familiar anecdote of Edward's going out on his on his horseback rides in the woods and coming back home with his coat covered in little scraps of paper pinned to his jacket where he's jotted down little notes that he didn't want to forget. And these, of course, are entered into his notebooks and become his uh, you know, fodder for his miscellanies, uh, etc. So it's a very interesting period, I think, here in, in the life of Edwards. Well, we come now to 1735, uh, and we have, uh, remember that the, uh, the, I guess you would call it a mini-revival or mini-awakening in the Connecticut River Valley, uh, is occurring in 1734, as David has already said, the, the, the human instrument of that being the lecture series on justification by faith. Uh, that lasts for some time and, in, in fact, actually spreads, but then comes to a screeching halt when uh, Edward's uncle, Joseph Hawley Jr., commits suicide by slitting his throat. Uh, in fact, on June 1st of 1735, that takes place. Uh, several interesting things occur in that year in 1735. You've got uh, the church gathered uh, in the meeting house, and the balcony collapses uh, as people are in the meeting house, and yet, amazingly, miraculously, nobody is killed. Um, that will then lead to uh, a vote to build a new meeting house, uh, important. And, and then, and then there, are, there are issues that arise later in the building of the new meeting house uh, regarding the rental of pews, the placement of fa- prominent families as opposed to less prominent families. We have all of that that goes on with the, the building of the new meeting house. Uh, an important thing that occurs uh, in 1735 is the uh, attempted ordination of Robert Breck in Springfield. Uh, now that's um, significant to me because I lived in Springfield, Massachusetts, graduated from high school and college and became a Christian in Springfield. And I believe I've actually been in the church that, that Breck was actually called to serve. What happens is Breck... Uh, is called, and then there are questions about the uh, orthodoxy of his theology, he he being uh, primarily an Arminian. uh, And uh, Edwards joins in the opposition to the ordination of Breck, and there's a whole controversy that arises out of of this uh, situation. Uh, Breck, though, does get ordained and is appointed to the, the, the Congregational Church in Springfield. And this is important because Breck will, I believe, cast the deciding vote in the, in the association's recommendation that the church in Northampton uh, depose Edwards. Uh, so it comes back to haunt him. His opposition to Breck's ordination will lead eventually, many 15 years later, to Breck's support for his deposition from the pulpit in Northampton. So the 1730s seems like a pretty busy time in the life of Edwards. It's also at that time that um, 
we're told that Joseph Bellamy comes to sort of be an understudy and to learn from Edwards. And Dave, why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about the importance of Bellamy? And then obviously Samuel Hopkins comes in 1741 and, um, and why these two figures are important um, in association with Edwards. Yeah, the reason that, that guys like Bellamy and Hopkins are important, and we'll, we'll say more about this in an upcoming show where we deal more thoroughly with the New England theology, but the idea of the new divinity or New England theology, as it's, as it's called, has to do with the question of what was the culpability of Edwards for some of the theological anomalies of guys like Bellamy and Hopkins, etc., uh, issues related to a governmental view of the atonement, issues related to their view of original sin, and so forth. But Joseph Bellamy lived from 1719 to 90, was a student uh, in Jonathan Edwards' home, a very close personal friend of Edwards. And, you know, in those days, it was not uncommon for Edwards to take young ministerial students into his home to mentor them, to teach them. That, frankly, wasn't an uncommon practice for ministers across the board to mentor students uh, that, that way. And, and you, you know, you see that uh, laying groundwork for the Log College, mm. which a lot more can be said about that. Uh, but, you know, when Jonathan Edwards moved to Stockbridge, for instance, Bellamy, who had been taught and mentored by Edwards, uh, was able to, to fellowship with Edwards, and, and Edwards even then helped temper some of, some of Bellamy's uh, theology. But in uh, Bellamy's True Religion Delineated, he, he really expanded his conception of the Edwardsian project in a, in a, in a couple of unique ways. Uh, one had to do with, with what Edwards taught on uh, the will and man's natural and moral ability. And again, we can say more about that in an upcoming show. Uh, but, uh, but also uh, with regard to Edwards' view of the atonement, Edwards' view of sin, uh, etc., uh, Hopkins comes along uh, just a couple of three or four years after after Bellamy as a disciple of of Edwards, and actually Hopkins was Jonathan Edwards' first biographer. He was a student. He was a friend of of Bellamy as well. Um, but Hopkinsianism, as it is sometimes called, took Bellamy's work even in more explicit directions with regard to uh, imputed sin, uh, etc. Governmental view uh, of the atonement. Uh, Jonathan Edwards Jr. Uh, there, there are others we could talk about. Nathaniel Emmons, and I think all those uh, figures would be really good for our listeners to be aware of, uh, just because some people will lay the culpability for their theological missteps at at the feet of Edwards. But they were true disciples of Edwards. They were truly, I mean, literally discipled by Edwards. But uh, I think, as we will discuss in an upcoming show, not really faithful to the theology of Edwards. I mean, Jeff, what would you add to that? No, I think that's a fair assessment, that, that uh, they depart from Edwards at, at significant points. However, you know, you, you have the fact that Ed, Edwards wrote that it, the introduction to, to Bellamy's work yeah. uh, that, that, that muddies the waters, if you will. True religion delineated. Well, again, as I say, I think we'll have an opportunity uh, in a future show, Lord willing, to delve more intentionally into the New England theology and some of these figures we've talked about. Uh, but by this time, 1737, again, this is a period where Edwards really is uh, focusing at, at the beginning of the revival, beginning his analysis of religious experience, beginning his analysis of of the occurrence of the revival. And so in 37, he writes a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. And then a year later, 1738, 
uh, the sermon series Charity and Its Fruits uh, are, are preached. Yeah, the, the faithful narrative uh, has an interest. There's an interesting history to the publication of that. I believe it began, uh, David, and you can correct me, there was a magazine, a pro-revival, pro-awakening magazine that was periodical, published out of Boston uh, with Thomas Prince. I believe that's right, yes. And I think he may have asked Edwards to write a, a brief account of the revival that had occurred in Northampton in the surrounding villages of the Connecticut River Valley. Uh, and that eventually gets passed on to two ministers in England, Isaac Watts and uh, Thomas Geese, is it, or Geis? Uh Again, this is off the top of my head, so I could be wrong here. But uh, eventually, uh, there's some back and forth, and Edwards expands the narrative to what we now know as the full-length faithful narrative of a surprising work of God. And it's basically an accounting of the, the revival, uh, that initial revival that occurred uh, in 1734 and thereabouts. Uh, that be, that actually puts Edwards on a world stage. Uh, and of course, as, if you're familiar at all with Edwards' sermons, you will know that Edwards will will on occasion chastise his congregation uh for not for saying he'll he'll say look folks you're you're famous you're world famous now and and you're going you're not living up to the reputation that you've earned or we've we've fallen from the high point of the revival uh and that that narrative becomes i think the first in a series of of um treatises that Edwards will pen dealing with the nature of of true religious affections and you can track the maturity of Edwards the 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 growing maturity of Edwards in assessing religious affections uh, this faithful narrative would be the first work religious affections would be the last work in that progressive maturation process that Edwards goes through now also uh, in 1738, you have the April to October series of sermons that, that David has already mentioned, Charity and His Fruits. Mm. That is actually um, based upon 1 Corinthians 13, and I believe it's 15 sermons dealing with, with uh, Paul St. Paul's description of love. Uh, the 15th sermon, perhaps maybe the best known, is Heaven is a World of Love. Right, right. Uh, but that's received a fair bit of attention in the secondary literature in the past few years. Interestingly enough, that does not see the light of day beyond its initial preaching right. until its publication in 1852, I believe, by Edward's uh, grandson. Tryon Edwards, was he involved with that, I think? I think you're right. Yeah, I know um, it was a, published that that late. Yeah, eight, 1852. So it it it's almost it's over 200 or 100 years between the preaching and the publication of of that uh, uh series of sermons. Yeah, um <clears throat> Edward's son is born also in 1738, uh Timothy, and there's several letters that um you can read, really sweet letters that um 
Jonathan Edwards wrote to Timothy, I guess, when he went off to college. You can find those on the um, the Yale Jonathan Edwards website. Um, really encourage our listeners to read some of those. They're maybe not as widely known or talked about, but just really, um, really sweet to read a father's heart toward his son. Um, and then obviously that leads us up to 1739. And, you know, in my opinion, and I know and it's just my opinion, but uh, Edward's magnum opus, uh, obviously Freedom of the Will probably was, but History history of the Work of Redemption, which um, I'll never forget the first time I read that and just thinking, wow, you know, here's a, here's a rich, redemptive historical undertaking, um, into, you know, written in early 1700s. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful work. Uh, why don't one of y'all talk about that work um, as it was preached and as it um, was developed in Edward's thinking? I'm going to let David do this because he's actually published on this topic. Mm. Take it away, Dave. I, um, I'll say a few things and would like to hear y'all's thoughts. I think I agree with you, Nick. I think uh, for me personally, it's Opus. You're, you're probably right. Freedom of the Will. Uh, more than likely is considered his magnum opus. I think this probably had the potential to be. And what I mean by that is, and we'll get to this in our next show uh, where we finish up the life of Edwards, but and I don't want to let too much of the cat out of the bag, but one of the reasons that Edwards originally hesitated when he wrote to the, col- the trustees of the College of New Jersey about coming to be the president there was because he had a number of works that he wanted to give his attention to, and he had the time to do that there in Stockbridge because he didn't have all the administrative um, you know, exigencies of a large church or certainly of a, of a college. And one of the things he wanted to do was turn his attention to this 1739 series of sermons and shape them up into a, a what we would really, I think, call a, a sort of proto-biblical theological treatise, sort of a proto-Vossian biblical theological treatise. And he he characterized uh, these sermons and, that, and the treaties that he hoped, hoped to develop out of these sermons as theology cast in an entirely new method, a method that he called most beautiful and entertaining. Huh. It's really, really, uh, really a special way of describing what we consider biblical theological method to be. Very beautiful, very entertaining. Now, obviously, he didn't get to do that. And again, I don't want to let too much of the cat out of the bag, but he didn't get to turn these sermons into the treaties that he hoped that they would be. Nonetheless, I think, even in their current state as a series of sermons, they are certainly a very powerful, uh, very significant treatise in their own right. And there's a, there's a book called The Legacy of Jonathan Edwards, and I'm not even sure if it's still in print. I know it went out of print uh, at one point. I hope it's back in print. But The Legacy of Jonathan Edwards and Harry Stout, in the first chapter, has uh, a piece in there on Jonathan Edwards' tri-world vision of history, his tri-world vision of history, where Edwards views history as being played out in three levels or in three worlds, heaven, earth, and hell. So this is a very complex uh, treatise that Edwards, you know, would have would have put together, very complex series of sermons. And Edwards has a very, a very beautiful view of history. And one of the one of the analogies that he uses regarding history is that of a river. And he, and he says this in the history of the work of redemption. This is in the Yale volume uh volume 9, page 520, he says this, God's providence may not unfitly be compared to a large and long river, having innumerable branches beginning in different regions and at a, ver- and at a great distance one from another, and all conspiring to one common issue, 
um, basically one common fountain or one common outflow. After their very diverse and contrary courses, which they hold for a while, yet all gathering more and more together, the nearer they come to their common end, and all at length discharging themselves at one mouth into the same ocean, the different streams of this river are ready to look like mere jumble and confusion to us because of the limitedness of our sight, whereby we can't see from one branch to another and can't see the whole at once, so as to see how all are united in one. A man that sees but one or two streams at a time can't tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked, and the different streams seem to run for a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way to hinder um, their ever uniting and coming to the ocean as rocks and mountains and the like. But yet, if we trace them, they all unite at last and all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves into one, uh, into the same great ocean, not of all the streams, not one of all the streams fail of coming hither at last. And, and that is what, what he means by that is that, that sort of tri-world view, that history is being played out at the level of heaven, at the level of earth, at the level of hell. And all of these, these levels of history being played out are all these streams or tributaries being being played out uh, is because God has one ultimate end in mind for history. And I love the way Harry Stout says that history was emerging as nothing less than a container for the synthetic whole of theology and indeed of God's innermost self-revelation. And so history really is for Edwards a stage where where theology is played out, where revelation is is played out. And when I read the history of the work of redemption, I really see a couple of things uh, from a soteriological, Christological standpoint uh, come come into view. And it's what I call a soteriological, Christological structure of history. And it's one, anticipation, two, actualization, and three, application. And you see this in the history of the work of redemption. Anticipation is from the fall to the incarnation. Actualization is the incarnation. And then application has to do with from the resurrection of Christ to the end uh, of the world. And so Edwards has, again, a very, very Christological view of history. In fact, he, he structures history around four comings of Christ. Right. The first coming of Christ was his personal and physical advent in the first century when, when he inaugurated the kingdom spiritually and formed the church, etc. The second coming of Christ was a spiritual advent in which he destroyed the heathen Roman Empire uh, during the age of, of Constantine around the fourth, early fourth century. And then the third coming of Christ would also be spiritual when he comes to destroy Satan's kingdom and establish the millennium. This was in the distant future and would uh, probably not be seen, Edwards thought, until somewhere around the year 2000. And then finally, a fourth coming of Christ would be uh, after the millennium. Uh, It, like the first coming, uh, would be personal and physical and as he comes to bring the final judgment and consummate the kingdom. So you really have a good insight into Edwards' view of history both theologically, his view of the millennium, very, very important treatise. Well, even though it wasn't a treatise, a very, very important would-be treatise, nonetheless, a series of sermons that uh, that he preached in 39. Yeah, and again, we hope to be able to deal more thoroughly with that, dissecting that, and that was a really, really helpful overview of the history of the work. Uh, dedicate some time to uh, theological consideration of that work. Um, one other thing I'll mention just briefly before we wrap this show up, and um, hopefully we'll meet again for a second part. It's interesting to me, the miscellanies that Edwards began that first year 
that he was a pastor in 1722. In 1739, 17 years later, he had written 832, which you just see this commitment, this man who is dedicated to what he began just chiseling away. And, and we see all the volumes of the miscellanies that we have now from Yale that they've published. And, um, you know, that's, that's impressive that what he began his first year, he's continuing through his whole ministry. Right. Remember, he's reading it with a, pen, a quill in hand. I mean, right. that's, that's really what's going on. Anytime, uh, and, and of course, once he started thinking about a given topic, he wouldn't give up until he had at least thought his way through to a solution uh, to a problem. Uh, and of course, he, he would work at, he could work at things for many years before he came to a solution that he was, he found acceptable. Right. Well, we are so thankful that you have taken time to tune in again as we have um, given a little consideration to the life of Jonathan Edwards. We hope that you'll tune in again next time um, as we finish out uh, consideration of his um, his biography. And I want to thank uh, Jeff and I want to thank Dave for being on the show. You can find um, Jeff online all over the Reform Forum. Uh, he blogs some with me at feedingonchrist.com. Jeff also has some sermons at calvary-amwell.org at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. You can also find him as a panelist on Christ the Center. And Dave also, you can find some of his sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find some of his um, writings over at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. And uh, again, thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope that you'll tune in again for another episode of East of Eden. 